Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine and director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. On this program, as you might recall, poets choose a favorite poem from the magazine's archive to read and discuss, and we will also ask them to read a poem of their own that's been published in the New Yorker. My guest today is Marie Howe, the author of four poetry collections, a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets, and former New York State Poet Laureate. She's received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation, among others. Uh, Welcome, Marie. Thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure, Kevin. Now, the poem you've decided to read today is The American Security Against Foreign Enemies Act by Lucy Brock Broido, who was my first teacher in college and your old friend. Yes. Uh, And we're mourning her this week. Can you tell us a little bit about why you picked this particular poem, and you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about Lucy, too. Sure. Um, well, Lucy and I both arrived in Cambridge the same year, and we were great, great friends for 10 years. We helped each other study, helped each other learn how to teach. And that's at, when I met you, I think. Yes, it was. And in fact, you won a contest, I judge. <laughs> and I still remember that poem. Oh, well, I remember it, too. But It was great. It yeah, was great. Right you. away, right away, we could tell there was a voice there. Lucy's voice, of course, is unlike anyone else's. That's right. And um, her poems are elaborate, exquisite, mystical, embodied. Not enough words to describe how she uses language and tone. But this poem, when I read this poem in The New Yorker, I wrote Lucy right away. And I said, how did you do this? How did you hold the zeitgeist in these lines. How did you do it? And I wrote, I said, this is a queer ball thing to say, which is what we used to say back in the day. But I'm so proud of you. Right. And she wrote back and said, oh, I love the queer ball thing. (laughs) Thank you for being proud of me. Uh, How interesting. Um, I'm proud of you. And we went, you know, we were girls again. You know, we'd known each other for so long, over 30 years. I know. um, But this poem to me is one of the most important poems that's come out of this time, Kevin. And because of what it holds, the great thing about poetry, of course, is that it cannot be paraphrased. It cannot be reduced to information. And this poem holds everything that cannot be said. And it has Lucy's characteristic use of uh, nouns and verbs. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about in the poem. Well, well, let's hear the poem, and then let's talk about it a bit more. Here's Marie Howe reading The American Security Against Foreign Enemies Act by Lucy Brockbroido. Why do you feel most vulnerable? Where in Damascus... Were you born? To whom do you pray? What does it mean to have winged brows? Have you ever spoken through a mesh? Was it dark speech that you made? Is it hot inside your burqa? Who was Frank Sinatra? Why was our war called civil? And who won? Can you keep a bright gaze? How tall was Allah? What once was Palestine? 
what most displaces you. Have you visited Somalia? Have you ever crossed a border in a boat by night to another land? Sir, in all, how many died? Is your wife considered meek? Point to Mecca from right here. Why is our court supreme? What does the sound and the fury mean to you? Who was Huckleberry Finn? Has your husband ever traveled to Afghanistan? In Sharia, when a woman's hair is loose, is she a prostitute or slave? Do you understand what red state means? Do you speak American? Here, read that aloud. Do you have tattoos? What does paranoia mean? In what season do we vote for president? How much freedom does the First Amendment cost? Which is the tallest tree? You were once a doctor. How is it, as you say, you've come to selling vegetables? How tall was Jesus in bare feet? Do you consider him a refugee? Have you a disease that is contagious? What are the Hunger Games? Who sang Moon River best? Do you have friends or relatives who are barbarians? What is the blues? What is a second sleep? What most once made you weep? When was Lincoln? Who is Stephen King? Explain what obfuscation means. Have you been lashed? Who were our pilgrims? Why did they come? Have you ever eaten eel? Why do you bring just one small son? Where are the other ones? What are your other sons? That was the American Security Against Foreign Enemies Act by Lucy Brock Broido, which was published in the September 26, 2016 issue of the magazine. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Wow, that's amazing to hear. Mm -hmm. I often just say wow after Mm -hmm. these things, but um, I think in particular that poem, I was struck by a number of things. Lines, of course, just incredible mm-hmm. lines from mm-hmm. Mesh, uh, which mm-hmm. also sounds like mess, mm-hmm. to Sir and all, how many die? That register mm-hmm. she, I mm-hmm. think, 
captured. They're all questions without answer, but they're also without question marks, you know. And I think, what is the effect of that? I mean, for our readers who I'm sure read the poem once upon a time or coming to the poem for the first time, what is the effect of those questions without question marks? To read it, is it's difficult because one wants to put a question mark in, but it's not there. How tall was Jesus and bare feet? These are questions that assume an answer. These are mm-hmm. questions that assume the person doesn't know the answer. Mm. Um, we, we say this to our children, right? When did you expect I would get here? <laughs> well, what, did you, what were you thinking? Right. right. It's not a real question. It's an interrogation. It's an interrogation, yeah. right? And it's not asking what it says it's asking. It's asking what isn't being said, which mm-hmm. is where the poem really resides, which gives me that chill. Yeah, I'm getting a chill, you know, too. It's, it's, and which is why it's so brilliant. Because it's the voice of God, of authority. I mean, who is quizzing us here? I wish it were God. Mm. It's not. Yeah. God would not ask these questions. I don't think God cares who Stephen King is. <laughs> God bless Stephen King. but, but <laughs> he, this, he does care about the blues. but He for, does <laughs> care about the blues, of course. And he probably cares about the burqa. <laughs> but um, here's the other thing Lucy does. We can talk at length yes, about Lucy. Yes, let's do that. When was Lincoln? Mm-hmm. Right? That's a great line. I mean, not who was Lincoln, not mm-hmm. what did Lincoln, when was Lincoln? Which we all, you know, uh, know or, or have a sense of. But even the Americans don't always know when was Lincoln. Well, that's the thing. Or some people, my, my daughter grew up without a TV. Mm. Right. We watch a lot of Netflix, but no TV. <laughs> right. People look at her and go, you don't know what the office is. Right. Right. Sure. You know, you don't know who what that that science guy, that mad science guy. Yeah, and, sure. Sure. And no, my son, in contrast, is only watching The Office now. See, which is like, well, now she's watched all every single. Here's the other thing. I've read this poem many times. And every time I read it, Kevin, I read the last line wrong. I've read. Why do you bring just one small son? Where are the other ones? Where are your other sons? Interesting. Right? Because that's what you would expect. Sure. But this voice says, why do you bring just one small son? Where are the other ones? Assuming the answer, what are your other sons? Right. Um, So son, one's sons. And the what is not a who. Mm -hmm. It's a what. Mm -hmm. You know? And we were talking outside, and Hannah was saying that Lucy actually kept changing these last two lines. How interesting. At the very last moment, which is very Lucy, too. Right, of course. And she might have said, where are the other ones? Where are your other sons? Or what are the other ones? Right. But she changed it. And well, it, and that little bit of slippage, I think, mm-hmm. makes it... Um, Poignant, but also this idea of, you know, reducing, to me, the sons to a what. To a what. But also this, excuse me, idea of we sometimes are thinking too much about what as opposed to who or uh, how. I'm also struck in the poem by this line that I think people might not always have thought of her in, but do you speak American? I know. And, and I feel like Here, she spoke this. Read one that of, aloud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel like she all, always spoke this kind of American, even if it was these different registers. Mm-hmm. Um, she was able to pull in uh, sort of this glorious language, this high language, mm-hmm. and then, you know, turn to say, what is the blues? You know, mm-hmm. what is a second sleep? And she, you mm-hmm. know, uh, loved those kind of bits of, not, trivia, but of facts that really told us something about human life and history, like mm-hmm. second sleep that people used to 
go to bed and then wake up in the middle of the night and have a whole sort of, uh, you know, early dawn where they would do things mm-hmm. and often do needlework and things like that and then mm-hmm. have this second sleep. And I, I try to get there to that second sleep, but we can't always. And well, she's sort of... But uh, it's because well, it's what we did when we didn't have electricity. Of course. Right? We went to sleep at 5 o'clock at night <laughs> in the winter. Right. Then got up at midnight, had sex, you know, <laughs> made, ate pie. Right, right. Made, uh, did uh, the then, things that humans do, right. but don't do anymore because right. we are on our darn devices or right. something. Right. Oh, that's a whole other story. But here's, here's another line. Let's celebrate. How much freedom does the First Amendment cost? That's great. <laughs> what can you say? Yeah. There it is. Yeah. The whole thing. Right. Um, you know, how much freedom does the First Amendment cost? Um, to equate cost, freedom, First Amendment in an in a, in a, uh, equation. Yeah, the, like, like a math equation you can't solve. Right. Um, That's right. And to me, it's also the poem itself is about speech. Mm-hmm. And I think her poems, yeah. they feel very written sometimes, but mm-hmm. I think they're about this way we talk, you know. And she, she would uh, – her sort of biggest compliment on your poem was get out of here, you know, like yeah. this kind of, you I know, know – uh, Pittsburgh uh, kind she of sort of hit you on the head with it too. <laughs> yeah, Get yeah. out of here! <laughs> like you, you I know, can't believe you did up. this amazing thing. I know, thing. I know. Um, and I feel that about those lines, but I also feel like obviously this is a political poem. I think all poems have elements of of talking about power, thinking about it. Um, even the ones who say they don't, perhaps those most of all. But I think people might not always think of uh, Lucy as a political poet. By writing the master letters, say, or mm. or writing her poems uh, about move. She oh, wrote come this on. early the poem. The first book? It's about bodies uh-huh. under siege yes. in this way. Yes. A Hunger, the yes. book is called, if yes. you don't have it's it. It's very much people who are trapped. Mm-hmm. In the well, in a move called being firebombed. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Lucy was a friend to those who were not on the inside. Mm. And she was such a, I can't even say was still, she is such a character because she is at once in the inside and on the outside all the time um, in her relationship to the world. Yes, I think you're right. Um, you know, this to me is one of the truly terrifying interrogations. You were once a doctor. How is it, as you say, you've come to selling vegetables? Mm. Mm. Every person driving an Uber or a taxi or something or Lyft in New York has a story. Right? right. Where are you from? Egypt. What were you doing there? I was an engineer. Right. You know, and um, you and claim. You claim. There's this, as you say, you know. That's really interesting. Um, uh, and then, of course, we don't hear any, any response. This is right. a call without a response. That's right. You know, it's. Well, and then it, it, the juxtapositions are, are telling us another story, as you said, a kind of story that the poem is circling. How tall was Jesus follows that. You In know? his bare feet. <laughs> and so there's this idea of the story of Allah, of, of Jesus, of the world and its uh, yeah. beliefs yeah. And, and how they get used against people rather than to honor or bring together. Or Also, I mean, when she says, um, what does the sound and the fury mean to you? Of course, we think of Faulkner, but I also think of shock and awe. 
I mean, Sound and Fury. Um, well, and the Hunger Games uh, <sighs> is is a great choice because they're uh, about losing Huckleberry our Finn, youngest. Right? Yeah. Again, a refugee from civilization. That's really light out, Lighting out for the territories, right? Trying to get away from what's what's called civilized. When she says, why was our war called civil? Yeah. And who won? A question we sometimes still uh, forget or lose. I don't it's think, an interesting, you know, uh, the array of reference, I mm-hmm, think, mm-hmm. belies this kind of notion that sometimes people have about poetry being just about itself or somehow about, uh, you know, the things that I always took poetry to be, which was about the song and the self and about these things that I think are evident in this poem. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really struck by it. Mm-hmm. What do you think, you know, uh, just it's hard to look back. I mean, it's been so yeah. recent and mm-hmm. I, um, we're going to run her last poem here and we're really proud about that. Mm-hmm. But sad, of course, too. And I, I wonder just how we think of her now, you know, and how will she be thought of? Lucy resuscitated language at a time when many of us were writing what still people refer to as confessional poetry, which I object to. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's in any way confessional. Sure. Um, but if she were a painter, she would be a painterly painter, right? Right. There would the, the the canvas. You put your hands on it, and it would be it would be three dimensional. You know. Right. Right. I mean, there's so much paint and so much language in the early work. Um, I think it was hermetic to some people. They couldn't mm-hmm, crack it. Mm-hmm, they couldn't mm-hmm. find a way in um, unless you were willing to believe that the little girl who was stuck in that well really wanted to be famous, you know, <laughs> and um, because she wrote in persona poems, but they yes. weren't really those people. They were aspects no, of herself, right, right. Um, which is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel in the last books, especially since her heart was broken, by the deaths of dear friends, like ours are broken now by sure, her, sure. you know, Liam Rector and Lucy Greeley yeah. and her mother, mm-hmm. um, that that the poems just became clearer and clearer and clearer. Lucy and had a joke about she and I. You know, we were we were really like twins in those days. So we were the two women in, in, a, <laughs> in, a, in a sea of men in uh, Boston, writing, yeah. writing in the early eighties, and. Um, she used to say, you know, Marie, you have to go down deep and feel things. I'd go to the dictionary. <laughs> and, of course, she's completely wrong. But it was a joke, you know. That's wonderful. It was a joke that she would just pour over the dictionary. Oh, sure. She you loved the, the oddball mm-hmm. phrase, the strange saying. The, the, the history of language, yes, you know. that's right. Finding it, finding it, finding it, you know. People magazine in the dictionary, she used to say, <laughs> right? Um, um, but because she loved the ultra contemporary, you know, the the vulgar, mm-hmm. the 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 talk on the street, you know, mm-hmm. what people were watching on TV. Um, but Lucy was always after meaning, mm-hmm. always after meaning, and you know, domestic mysticism. I mean, she wanted to touch the nature of reality. Well, and I think she knew that for her, and I think for many, the you couldn't do it by just writing your own story only for her, you know, certainly. But, you know, I remember I took a class with her later, which was uh, just a semester. It felt like several years in its depth and and import of just persona. You could only write persona in this class. And I think it really, uh, 
you know, divided in a good way what you were going to do. Suddenly you realized you had to say what you had to say, but by some other obviously different voice. And I still remember the the poems that other people turned in, you know, lines. And, you know, I certainly was a important uh, furnace or, or oven for cooking what I was going to do. So, Well, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Sure. She loved that quote. You know, Lucy didn't like Emily Dickinson. <laughs> and Is was, that why she wrote her, about her constantly? I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell yes. you a story. So when, oh, you know, Oswald Malnichak and Stuart Deschel, Stephen Kramer, Stephen Tapscott, Mary Carr, we were all coming up in those days writing our books. And many of us lived in the same building. And we would do this thing where if you didn't under, if you didn't like a poet, like I didn't understand Wallace Stevens and Stephen Kramer said, come over and I love him. I'm over, I'll read him to you. So Lucy was like, Ugh, Emily Dickinson. Ugh. I said, Lou, you don't even know what you're talking about. Come over. She comes over. I'm reading her all the great poems right after great pain, a formal feeling comes. I felt a funeral in my brain. You know, she's like, Mm-mm-mm. she's sitting on my little flowered, crummy little couch. I mean, she's looking through the book and then suddenly she goes, wait, what are these? In the back, the master letters. Who is this master? Now, I'm getting chills again because <laughs> the yeah. lightning, you know, right. came down. And she didn't really, the poems were fine, but these letters, like right. what in the world is she doing? Right. And from that came the master letters and wow. so much more. I mean, you know how it is, Kevin. You're feeling along the wall for a portal to open that's going to somehow release what wants to be what wants to come through you sure and lucy found the portal and those, right. and those letters you know well and i and i think in the sort of master that she could write to or yes. against or yeah. not about at all but really like let her tell this confess to in a weird way you know in a non-confessional poetry way she loved the notion of devotion mm-hmm. she was devoted to her friends she was devoted to her students who became her friends she was devoted to language, devoted to poetry, perhaps in a way almost no one is anymore. <laughs> Louis. Well, and I felt like her her uh, love of Dickinson influenced her, you know, dress. You know, <laughs> she kind of dressed a little Dickinsonian. Uh, well, it was, um, it was extraordinary. I mean, yeah. Lucy looked like she had stepped out of, you know, the 1800s. I mean, she was so... Uh, ornate in that yes, way. Yeah. And, and her poems had that feel, but then mm-hmm. once you pressed past that, yes, yeah, there was this resonant depth that I think mm-hmm. uh, we're still learning from. Yeah. She was really one of the great editors. I have to just tell you one quick thing. Yes, please. I wrote a poem called What the Living Do, which was... One of the great poems. Well, Lucy had a huge effect on that poem. I'll just give you an example of one line. I read it to her we would just be at our desks and we'd unplug our phones all day and then we'd plug in and go, okay, listen to this. And um, so the first line of that poem is, some, the first few lines are, Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. Well, I'm embarrassed <laughs> to tell you that what I had written was, okay, I'm going to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Laughing's allowed. The, uh, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some fork probably fell down there. And Lucy said, you can't say fork. That's just too funny. Fork is a funny word. You can't say fork. And um, she goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. Say utensil. So it could have gone into the world with a fork in it, right? Um, 
And then there was another one, which was at the very end. It says uh, the speaker sees herself in the window glass of the corner video tour, and she sees her her blowing hair, her chapped face and unbuttoned coat, and I had chapped nose. And she said, that's another word you can't say. (laughs) Nose is funny. You can't say it. You have to say face. Well, that's right. Yeah, she's right. That's that's amazing. (laughs) I mean, she, you know, she... In our poems as a student, she would go over them mm-hmm. many, many times, sitting at Cafe Paradiso, oh, and uh, have you know many different colored inks, and you'd get them back, and they'd have this palimpsest of of her thoughts. And um, I think the challenge in the end was to figure out how not to write to that because it was so rewarding. How could you find your own you yeah. know way with such a powerful editor? And I feel like what was great is she let you know that this was no joke. Like mm-hmm. you weren't just putting down words. Right. for an assignment. Right. But that poem that you wrote in that week could right. be a poem that's, you know, in a magazine, that's right. in a book. Well, she was completely dedicated to the art of poetry. Yeah. You know. Well, I thank her uh, and we, we all miss her. Yeah. Let's uh, talk a little bit about your poem. Well, so, I wanted to read this poem because um, it's called The Star Market. Of course, it's a... It's a metaphorical star market, but there really was a star market, which you know, Kevin, in Porter Square. Still there. They're still there. I can't believe it's still, is it still called the star market? Yeah, yeah it's still because there. Because Oskold Melnichak, another old friend, um, wrote me this week that he saw Lucy at the star market two weeks ago. And, um, and she just died last week. Yeah. And um, so, of course, I have to read this poem. Yes, please. The star market. The star market. The people Jesus loved were shopping at the star market yesterday. An old lead-colored man standing next to me at the checkout breathed so heavily I had to step back a few steps. Even after his bags were packed, he still stood, breathing hard and hawking into his hand. The feeble, the lame, I could hardly look at them, shuffling through the aisles they smelled of decay as if the star market had declared a day off for the able-bodied, and I had wandered in with the rest of them, sour milk, bad meat, looking for cereal and spring water. Jesus must have been a saint, I said to myself, looking for my lost car in the parking lot later, stumbling among the people who would have been lowered into rooms by ropes, who would have crept out of caves, or crawled from the corners of public baths on their hands and knees, begging for mercy. If I touch only the hem of his garment, one woman thought, could I bear the look on his face when he wheels around? That was The Star Market by Marie Howe, uh, and it appeared in the January 14th, 2008 issue of The New Yorker. Um, Wow, that's another terrific poem, I think. I was struck by the word mercy because it seems like the poem is about mercy. <laughs> yeah, even though the, the Lucy kind of influenced me in this way, too, because she did not care if her speaker was particularly uh, attractive or likable. <laughs> yeah. And so this was actually, this was a poem that was written in Cambridge, but didn't, wasn't in my first book and wasn't it, it sort of kept I kept pulling it out and fooling around right, with it right. but the people that Jesus loved yeah that she admit that that sometimes it's so difficult to see frailty 
in others, and mm-hmm. of course, then to see it in yourself. Right. Um, and of course, these are the people Jesus did love and often healed. It's interesting because the form of the poem, too, has that change. And I was thinking of this, the end of Lucy's poem, which we're talking about, the rhyme starts in, in that mm-hmm. poem, sort of late. And mm-hmm. here you have these tercets that suddenly mm-hmm. become uh, mm-hmm. couplets yeah. and, and switch. It kind of, it doesn't erode. It more like has two endings in this way yes. that I think is really powerful. Mm-hmm. It, it narrows to this begging for mercy. And I think it could have ended there uh, in a lesser mm-hmm. imagined poem. But here it's the one woman I think is really interesting because mm-hmm. we might suppose it's one of the people Jesus loved or is it the speaker, right. the I, who sure. requires this sort of uh, blessing of sure. self? Sure, One woman thought, yeah, because there she is among, she's one of them, right? Yeah. And then who could bear the look on his face when he wheels around to say, who touched me? Right. Knowing, I mean, that you never didn't even touch him. You just touched the hem of his garment. <laughs> right. And he felt that power go out of him. I mean, it's... it's well, on the title, that's such a... <laughs> you didn't yeah. have to go far, but you had to go uh, deep to get, you know, this wonderful know. Uh, double meaning of the star. Uh, I know. But, I mean, and it had that big, used to have that big star that turned over it, you know. Um, uh, that's so funny. I know. When I was a child in Rochester, New York, there was a star market. But yes, Were you star. thinking of childhood at all in this poem? Or? No, but I think the star market um, then and the star market here in Porter Square, uh, you know, conflated. And the notion, because we would see, I remember one time it was a huge blizzard. Rochester gets a lot of snow. And my sister and I decided that we would take the toboggan and go to the star market. Nice. To get something, right? But it was so blizzardy. You had to kind of go down a hill and then up a hill. Oh, my. And we could see the star turning in the whiteness of the sky, you know, like late afternoon, like the kind of dusk, snow, snow, Oh, yeah, it's just like metal looking. Yeah, (laughs) but this green star was all we could see. Yeah. And we felt, you know, like adventurers, and we also felt endangered. Of course. You know, I, I don't even know if we actually made it. I think we got to the bottom of this big hill and started up, and we thought— You might have thought better. We can't. We can't. We have to go back, you know, the way it is when you're kids. I know. It's so we dramatic. We have to go back. We'll die, you know. But um, so that star market, and then, of course, the star market. Um, yeah, there's a market full of stars where you can buy them. Where you right. Can... You know, it's funny because we, talk- we were talking a little bit about humor. Mm-hmm. And do you think there's an element of humor? For me, there is. I, I mean, think it's hilarious. When you say had declared a day off for the yeah. able-bodied, sure. sour milk, bad meat, uh-huh. looking for cereal and spring water, sure. which we've all done yeah. versions of. And it's also, of course, cereal and spring water, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That Bread and water. Bread and, and water and, and that. Oh, I think it is funny. I monitored it. I thought it was funny. <laughs> I mean, I don't really think about what I'm writing when it happens. And I was laughing a little bit to myself when it was coming out. Sure, you sure. Know? Jesus must have been a saint looking for my lost car. Um, and I love the stories. I remember Michael Cunningham actually read, read this and said, what are you talking about? You know, would have been lowered into rooms by ropes because he didn't grow up with those stories. Where and and this is these are stories that you heard growing up Catholic or yeah, like this wonderful parables about 
people. We, we, we do the same thing now. Only it's Titnan Han or it's John of God and he's an Omega, you know, mm-hmm. and you can't get in. You know, it's already sold out. But you want to be healed, you know. Mm-hmm. So... Well, I think of a lot of things, but it reminds me a bit of Seamus and the way Seamus could bring in Absolutely. these parables. And, you know, he, of course, was in Cambridge and Boston at Seamus the same had time. had a huge influence on me. Tell us about that. Well, let's just take a moment and say thank you for Seamus Heaney. Everything about Seamus Heaney, thank you. Thank you for Mari Heaney. Yes, the absolutely. beautiful, beautiful Mari Heaney. Um, Seamus was such a generous and a kind man and such a brilliant poet. Yes. And he really, he and Jane Kenyon really gave me permission to let these stories bleed into the work without being ashamed. Yeah, tell us more. I mean, Well, you know, he, he grew up with the same. He's one of nine children like I am. He's the oldest. I'm the second oldest, the oldest girl. I always felt a great identification with him. Yes. And also, he, he just, they were in him, all these parables. Absolutely. Just, the way they're in me. And, and um, they, they really are the mythology uh, in my life. Um, some, Louise Gluck has the Greek myths. You know, other mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. have different things. But for me, they're these stories which are vast and deep, you know, and mysterious. So Seamus has like Kevin saying Kevin and the Blackbird. Yes, yes, I have. We used to joke about that. Oh, the gorgeous poem. My teacher. Yes, I know. See, here we are again with Seamus and Lou. And and then the wonderful poem where the ship comes down. Yes, that's the one I was thinking of with this poem. What's it called? It's from uh, Squarings or or those Mm -hmm, those set of poems from Seeing Things. that book, Seeing Things, was a huge influence. I think it was a tremendous book that you don't hear talked about enough, which is it was a book, I think, of majesty and how to write, you know, a new kind of myth where he had already taken these beautiful metaphors to write about the troubles. But then how do you write about, I don't know. His childhood. Yeah. And the mysteries. Kevin, that book made my book, What the Living Do Possible. That was it. I mean, those poems about the kids you know, playing the games until it got dark, until it was a dream ball, and, and they were playing in time that was fleet, unforeseen, and free. You know, the kids on the couch, you know, rowing. That was my my life, too. And I thought, my God, you can get that small. You can go down that right. close and, and let it be mythic, you know, mm-hmm. because it is. Right. And I remember seeing Seamus in the street, um, uh, you know, one of those back streets behind Harvard, and we were both walking, and I stopped, and I said, seeing things. I I just can't tell you how much the book means to me. And he says, oh, you know, they're all going to say I've gone soft. <laughs> because I mean, those are beautiful poems. They're great. And, and they do weave this uh, myth, and I think the thing that I think your poems and, and Seamus do, and I think poems that I admire do, is they manage to talk about myth in the personal. They make myths personal. They take make the personal into myth. Mm-hmm. They are interested in that interchange mm-hmm. um, that I think is happening all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worry about that now, though, because they're they're passing from our lives, and we don't know. We don't carry sure. these stories forward. Who will? Yeah. 
Well, and, and I think the, you know, a poet like Galway Cannell would talk about this, how there was uh, poetry, of course, the reason that, say, the King James Version is as elegant and lovely as it was, is there was a crowdsourcing of the great poets of the time writing yeah. uh, that. And, you know, all these cultures have their own fascinating originating myths. Mm-hmm. And I think you give us a, a sense of how we need to find ours. And, and that's what I try to encourage when I'm t- telling students or thinking about archives or, or talking about the ways that the stories we tell ourselves, how do we tell them to each other, for ourselves? Um, and why do they matter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just read a beautiful quote by Bruce Springsteen. Yes. Um, where he says, in love and in art, one and one makes three. <laughs> if you have just words and paper, nothing. Right. If you have paint and canvas, nothing. There has to be a third thing that is struggling up inside of you that you do not understand. Right. And that mystery is the third thing that you serve. And that that is where these myths, these deeper stories, whether they're from our lives or whether we recognize them in other ones, can help you plumb and plunge, if you will, into the deeper third thing that we cannot understand for it because it must emerge from our own bewilderment mm-hmm. for it to be to work as a poem that actually occasions a real discovery for the writer. Um, but I love that. I love that beautiful quote. Well, I love talking about bewilderment as a as a part of poetry. Um, not just, you know, a reason one goes to poetry and why one, you know, uh, writes poetry, because I, I think that sometimes we think it comes from an assured place. Like oh. people will sometimes say, "Oh, you're a poet. You shouldn't misspeak or at all." Yeah. And it's like, well, that's all poets do is they feel like they're yeah. misspeaking and they're trying to get that right. You know, in a poem, you can for a minute maybe yeah. have it right. You know? Or, or we we dwell in our bewilderment. Yes, I mean what Keats called negative capability. Right, we dwell at uncertainty. Like like our listeners, all everybody has lived through the loss of someone they can't live without. Um, and what do we turn to? What do we turn to? What do we turn to? Um, and all week I've been turning to a wonderful book called Soul Food. It's Blood X anthology, um, mm, Neil yeah. Astley and Pamela Robertson. Sure. And reading uh, maybe one or two poems a night before I've slept. And they really helped me. That's great. Um, because they, like I'm like everybody else, I go to poetry to hold what cannot be said, but what I recognize as true. And um, and I feel it again. I feel comforted, and I feel less alone. Yeah. Well, I think you've put it better than anyone, uh, certainly than I could put it. So I appreciate you coming on and giving us so much of your time, and and you know, talking about these people who are close to us mm-hmm. personally, but also close, I think, to many people out there listening. And I, I hope if you if you don't know them well, please pick up all the poets who we mentioned today, and. Um, I want to remind you that the American Security Against Foreign Enemies Act by Lucy Brock Broido, as well as Marie Howe's poem, The Star Market, can be found on NewYorker.com. Lucy Brock Broido's last book of poems is Stay Illusion. Marie Howe's most recent collection is Magdalene. Thank you so much for chatting with us, Marie. Thanks, Kevin. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. 
You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app available from the App Store or from Google Play. The music this week is the song Luna Bell by Clay Ross. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill DeBoff and Kalalia with help from Hannah Eisenman. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. from PRX.